Learning about Jesus from the one who was his closest friend. Join me, Pastor Hook, as we learn about truth and love from John the Beloved. So we are in 1 John chapter 5, verses 1 through 9, and this is continuing John's theme that God is love and that Jesus is God. And if you believe that Jesus is the Son of God, then you have great power, including life everlasting and other things. And so as John finishes this letter, he's just going to wrap up this theme one more time. So it is probably just beneficial to go ahead and get into the text and read it. So this is 1 John chapter 5, beginning at verse 1, where John writes, Everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ is born of God, and everyone who loves the Father loves his child as well. This is how we know that we love the children of God, by loving God and carrying out his commands. In fact, this is love for God to keep his commands. And his commands are not burdensome, for everyone born of God overcomes the world. This is the victory that has overcome the world, even our faith. Who is it that overcomes the world? Only the one that believes that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. I think I'll just leave it right there for now. So we talked about this earlier in earlier episodes, but this is a big deal for John, that Jesus is born of God, is God, is the Son of God. And we don't. this is not surprising because in his gospel, right off the bat, Jesus says, in the beginning was the Word, which is Jesus, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. All things were created by him, and without him nothing was created that was created in him was life, and that life was the light of man. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. This theme is central to, to John's theology, this, this beloved disciple that spent time with Jesus, the longest, the longest living disciple, the earliest disciple, the youngest disciple of Jesus. And he was absolutely adamant that God and Jesus were the same. And so he, this is a big, big theme. As a matter of fact, what he said in previous chapters is, if you don't believe that Jesus is God, then you're an antichrist. That's what you are. And some antichrists have come and more are to come. And anybody that does not believe the central tenet that Jesus is God, well, you're an antichrist. You're anti-God. You're anti-Jesus. You're anti-Christ. And he is not, does not have any kind words to people who are antichrists. But if you believe that Jesus is Christ and is born of God, then Everyone who loves the father loves the child, his child as well. So in other words, if you love Jesus, you love God because they're the same thing. And this is how we know that we love the children of God by loving God and carrying out his commands. And we saw this before. Beloved, love one another for God is of love and everyone who loves is born of God and loves God. He that loveth not, loveth not God for God is love. Beloved, love one another. That's First John four seven and eight. So, this is just this is just continuing in that theme uh, from John. This is how we know we love. We're child of God because we love. We carry out His commands. In fact, this is love for God, simply following His commands. If you follow God's commands, you love God. It's that simple. If you do not follow God's commands, you do not love God, then God is not in you. That is. That is what we're called to do, love. And how do we love? Well, Jesus 
shows an example of the Good Samaritan, and that's a good example of love. There's many other examples of love. Christ taught his disciples how to love, and so they went out into the world and they loved. The mission of our church is making loving disciples because Jesus said, go out and make disciples, and we've added the word loving because we believe that that's a big part of being a disciple of Jesus is loving because that's what John talks about is love. So everything's love, 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 love. In fact, this is love for God to keep his commands. Now, John says something interesting here. He says, and his commands are not burdensome, burdensome. Oftentimes we think that keeping the commands of God are burdensome, that they're very difficult, that they're hard to do. And I must admit that sometimes you look at the commands of God and you say, man, that's a hard command. I don't know if I could do that. Like, could you be a person walking on the road from Jerusalem to uh, Samaria and you see the uh, and you see the guy, the robber that is that has been robbed, he's off to the side of the road and you pick him up, would you be willing to pick him up, put him on your horse, take him to the nearest inn, pay money to to make sure that he's taken care of, come back and check on in on him? Is that something you're really, really willing to do? And the fact is, it's hard because, well, first of all, our, our possessions that we have, we have a hard time giving them up because they give us security. They give us... They give us image. They give us power. They give us standing in the community. All these things are things that we have when we have possessions, and we like our possessions because of all those things. And so giving up of our possessions is very, very difficult. But sometimes it's not even just giving up of possessions. It's also giving up of time. I mean, think about the Good Samaritan walking on this road, and he finds the guy lying dead on the street, and actually stopping and putting him on his horse and, and taking time out of his day to actually perform this act of kindness. He doesn't have to. Nobody's around to see him if he does or doesn't. He could easily just ignore the guy and move on, and yet he doesn't because he's filled with God's love and he sees a person hurting by the street. And so he not only gives of his ta- talent, you know, his, his treasures, but he gives of his time. And oftentimes, just giving up of time, we just don't do that very, very well. First of all, there's only so many people that you can give of your time to because you have a limited amount of time. So one of the ways you could give of some of your time is to train yourself over time that when you see somebody hurting in need, that you stop you put everything else on hold and you and you help that person. And our world today, with as fast as this world goes by and with as much stuff as we fill our world in, it is hard for us to simply stop and, and give our time. And Jesus wants us to. And yet, if you look at time, like how much time do you spend surfing Facebook or how much time do you spend if you're a YouTube person watching YouTube videos, or if you're into politics, how much time do you spend following politics? Or how much time do you spend watching the latest movie or thing on Netflix or Amazon Prime or Hulu or Disney Plus or Peacock? Or I heard ABC has a new one, Time. I can't remember. Anyway, all these different channels where there's so much content that that you can't, 
that you can't fit it all in. And so you have to find time to fit in the things that you want to fit in. And yet that's not what Christ has called us to do. He's called us to be in relationship. Everything that comes off of the TV or out of the internet is typically, not this particular broadcast, but typically is a one-sided relationship where somebody is giving, 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 and we're receiving, 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 receiving. We love it, but we don't have an opportunity to give back because we're not in a in a one-on-one equal relationship with that person. It's kind of a taking relationship. And it's, it is great because we love it, because it fills us up and we get joy out of it. And we can even think that we've got a relationship with the person that's on the YouTube channel or on the TV show or on the radio show or whatever it is. But we don't have a relationship with that person. As a matter of fact, it is pretty much 99% them and 1% us giving back to them. And that is a very, very, very unhealthy relationship. I don't care what people say, Hollywood actors giving their, you know, their time, talent, and treasure to put in a movie and then watching that movie is a, just a completely one-sided relationship. And that is not what God has in mind for us. He has in mind for us a two-sided relationship. Because in a two-sided relationship, you are uh, giving up of your time and giving up of yourself to love the other. And you can't do that um, in a lot of these relationships that are on the internet or in movies or whatever. It's It's just the wrong type of relationship. And we don't even realize it because it, um, it feels so good. It feels so right. It, it, uh, it, you know, you end up watching a great movie and you feel so good afterwards. It's like, I want that feeling over and over and over again. And so you can't wait to watch the next movie or the next episode or the next whatever. And yet God calls us to be more in a one-on-one relationship or a one-on-many relationship where we can actually give of ourselves to help other people. And that really is where, where we can grow as, as a Christian. It's where we can grow as a human being. And it's where we can do what God's called us to do, which is to love the other. And that's what God's called us to do. And the commands are not burdensome. I mean, it may seem burdensome to stop doing what we're doing and actually give of ourselves to somebody else. But it's one of those things that you go kicking and screaming into. And then once you've done it, it's like, man, that was that was really, really good and authentic and felt like I was serving God and being a part of his kingdom and, and that sort of thing. And so I think Christians who have learned this, they actually get addicted to just serving other people. They enjoy very, very much giving of themselves for the world around them to almost almost like an addiction because it is a great it is a great thing. It's what God's called us to do. As a matter of fact, you can be so much addicted to that that you ignore other needs in your life, and that's wrong too. So the whole goal of life is to balance all this thing, all these things. And um, the command is not burdensome. All of God's commands that he gives, from the Ten Commandments to the Old Testament commandments, all these commandments are not burdensome. They are things that God wants us to follow because they're the way we're created. And if we follow God the way we're created, then we are complete and filled with him and we live a life filled with, with joy, peace, kindness. We, we live a life, we live our best life the way that God created us. Let me put it that way. That's what God created us. So they're not burdensome. They're actually the way we're created. 
They may feel burdensome at first because they're so countercultural. They're counter how the world lives their life. But once you get into it, you, you don't see it as a burden whatsoever. It's actually filled with, with everything of God. But everyone born of God overcomes the world. So when God is in your life, he helps you with, the, with uh, overcoming the world. The, the, you start to transform from the way the world thinks of things to the way that God thinks of things. This is the victory that has overcome the world, even our faith. Who is it that overcomes the world? The one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God and follows his commands and loves. That's, that's basically what John has to say here. But we'll continue on. Verse 6. This is the one who came by water and blood, Jesus Christ. He did not come by water only, but by water and blood. And it is the Spirit who testifies, because the Spirit is the truth. For there are three that testify, the Spirit, the water, and the blood. And the three are in agreement. We accept human testimony, but God's testimony is greater because it is the testimony of God, which he has given about the Son. So this is a curious little passage that this is the one who came by water and blood. What does it mean that Jesus came by water and blood? And it is the Spirit that testifies because the Spirit is of truth. For there are three that testify, the Spirit, the water, and the blood. Now what's interesting, if you just look here real quick, you see right after the in verse 8, a little a. And if you go into other versions of the Bible, let's say the King James Version of the Bible, the, the 1611 King James Version that still is used in many, many churches, you have to understand that King James Version of the Bible was translated not from the original Greek and Hebrew manuscripts that existed from the first and second century. But what happened is that over time, the church moved from Greek and Hebrew into a Latin text because it was a Latin church. It was based in Rome, so everything was in Latin. As a matter of fact, the Roman Catholic Church still celebrates everything in Latin. It's a unifying language, and it's a great theological language. There's nothing wrong with Latin. The problem is, is that when they started translating the Bible from Latin into other languages, they didn't go back to the original text. So the King James Version of the Bible does not go back to the Greek and the Hebrew. It actually goes from the Latin text. As a matter of fact, uh, Luther's translation of the Bible into German was not from the Greek and Hebrew, although he may have used some sources there, but it's mostly from the Latin because, because Luther understood and read and understood Latin. So it was a very easy thing for him to take the Latin text and translate it to German. That Latin text was called the Vulgate, V-U-L-G-A-T-E, Vulgate. Now, the why I bring this up is because in the Vulgate, in the Latin text, right there where the A is, it reads differently. It reads, for there are three that testify, the, and then and the addition is, the ones in heaven, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit who testify, and then it says, the Spirit, the water, and the blood who testify, for the three are in agreement. So somewhere along the line, you, this is just going to blow your mind, but somewhere along the line, somebody added into the Latin text those things. The, the ones in heaven, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit that testify, and then the Spirit, the water, and blood who testify. So there's an addition there. So if you get out your King James Version and look at 1 John 5, verses 7 and 8, you will see a major difference between what we're showing here. 
This is the NIV, and the NIV, and most modern translations go back to the Greek and the Hebrew. This is just one of those weird, I'm fairly convinced that this is just one of those weird places where somebody actually went in and added text to our, our Bible. They should have never done it. It doesn't, it's not right. Um, this, and th- there's not very many of these that happen uh, in the, from Vulgate and Greek and, La- and, uh, and German and, and uh, in Aramaic and, and Hebrew. This is just one of those weird spots where that, this actually happened. Now, it could be that that is the correct text, but it, it's, it does not show up until like the 11th or 12th century or something like that. And all the old original manuscripts that we still have copies, it does not show up in those. So the NIV is actually a very, very good version of Scripture it, because it does go back to the original text. There's also a thing called the New King James Version, which gives you the flavor of King James, but it also goes back to the original texts. And people ask, well, does that mean we don't trust the Bible? No, we trust the Bible. My belief is that the original texts, as they were written, were perfect. They were God-inspired. God inspired them to be written. And they've been propagated to our present time by wonderful people who were men and women of God who propagated the text to us. But we have humans who are imperfect, kind of carrying that text forward. And some human back in the 10th or 11th century made a major, major mistake by adding that additional text into the, into the scripture. Does it change the theology? Not really at all. It does reinforce a Trinitarian doctrine. And if you know anything about the Roman Catholic Church coming out of 325 AD and Constantine, the idea of the Trinity is huge in, uh, in the Christian Church of the West, both, both the East and the West, actually. And so somebody going in and, and adding this does reinforce a Trinitarian doctrine. But there's plenty of other stuff in Scripture that reinforce a Trinitarian doctrine. So that's not... That's not something that really is necessary. You either believe in the Trinity or you don't. You either believe that God exists as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit or you don't. And I would say 99% of the Christian church believes in God as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And it's well documented in Scripture. The, The theology of the Trinity is documented in Scripture. So I just wanted to point that out because that's, uh, that's it. But so if you take that out of there and you just look at it as it's written here in the NIV, it says, well, we'll go look at it again. This is the one who came by water and blood, Jesus Christ. He did not come by water only, but by water and blood. And it is the spirit who testifies because the spirit is the truth. For there are three that testify, the spirit, the water, and the blood. And the three are in agreement. So What does water and spirit and blood really mean here? Well, you could say, well, what is John really getting? John was fighting. We talked about this before. We talked about John was fighting at his time, the early beginnings of a thing called docetism, which is that Jesus actually came into the earth as a spirit. He wasn't actually flesh and blood. He was spirit. And when he died, it was spirit. Or another option of docetism is that Jesus came as a human But at his baptism, the Spirit of God descended upon him like a dove and filled him with the Spirit. So he was kind of Spirit-filled or, you know, Spirit-filled man. And then when he died, the Spirit kind of left, you know, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And then, but it was his body that rose again, his human body. There's all different forms and flavors of this. 
And if John is talking about that, then he then flesh, then water and blood could mean the water and blood that flowed out of Jesus at his crucifixion. If you remember, the, the centurion stuck a spear in Jesus' side and blood and water flowed out. And it could be a reference to that, that, that Jesus was truly man because water and blood fell out of his body. Um, that's certainly one way of looking at it. Or you could say that the water is his, his baptism, that, that Jesus was baptized from the water and the blood was his crucifixion, that he was crucified and there was blood there. So somewhere in all of that is he doesn't really explain it. And it probably was something that they talked about in the early church. But there are three that testify to Jesus. The spirit, like the spirit that descended him. The water, because he was baptized in the water and the blood. The blood that happened at his crucifixion. Or maybe the water and the blood that came out of him. But that Jesus was true man and true God. And that was testified by, by the fact that he actually bled. And there was actually water there. And So anybody that says that Jesus isn't, isn't a true man of some sort. That he was like a... A ghost or something that you see, but if you put your hand through him, you know, he wasn't really real, they're lying. That Because Jesus and John walked together for three years, and John touched Jesus and saw his face and knew that Jesus was a real person that ate real food and all sort of things. And you can imagine if you're John and Jesus said, and people are saying, no, Jesus was a ghost. He wasn't really alive. That you would go ballistic because you knew that he was actually human. He became... Well, as John said, the word became flesh and dwelt among us. He's true God, true man dwelling among us. This is a big deal in John. So we accept human testimony, but God's testimony is greater because it is the testimony of God, which he has given about his son. So that testimony could easily be at his baptism where he says, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. If you'll remember at Jesus' baptism, the spirit of God descended like a dove and alighted on Jesus. And there was this voice from heaven, one part of the Trinity that said, this is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. The spirit is the spirit of God that comes out of the heavens, descends on Jesus. And of course you have God, the son. So all three of these were existing at, at Jesus baptism, which is another proof text of the Trinity, but it doesn't necessarily say Trinity. So that's probably why somebody added this in here. Cause it is a great point you know, at this point to say that the three is the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Anyway, I wanted to go just finish this little section. Um, so let's just go and start in verse 10. So whoever believes in the Son of God accepts this testimony. Whoever does not believe God has made him out to be a liar because they have not believed the testimony God has given about his Son. This is the testimony. You ready for this? da 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 God has given us eternal life. And this life is not his, and this life is in his son. God has given us eternal life, and this life is in his son. Whoever has the son has life. Whoever does not have the son of God does not have life. So this is a major, major, major theme for John. And we know that because in his gospel, John 3:16, he said, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whoever believes in him has eternal life, right? Uh, whoever believes in him may have eternal life. So um, this is a big theme for John. Jesus is the son of God. If you believe that Jesus is the son of God, you'll have eternal life because Jesus rose from the dead. Someday you'll raise from the dead. It, it's basically 
That's basically John in a nutshell. Um, God has given us eternal life. If you are not in any Christ, but if you are a Christian and you are one who believes that Jesus is the anointed Messiah of God, pre-creation with God and created the world with God and is God and was God and all those things, if you believe all that, then you will have eternal life as Jesus had eternal life. The belief that Jesus is the Son of God or is God, belief that he rose again, belief that he brought life, salvation, that he calls us to love, all that stuff, you will have eternal life. And that is a major, major, major theme of John. I think we'll leave it there. Um, and um, we'll pick up that we'll make some closing comments. There's only one more uh, session and then we'll finish this out. Uh, and then we'll tie up this whole first John in a bow. So would you please join me in prayer? Gracious God, for the blessings of this day, thank you for the life that you give us. Thank you uh, that you became flesh to dwell among us. Thank you. Be with us until we meet again. In your name we pray. Amen.